This story begins in much the same way as many stories of murder. A quiet street, a safe neighborhood, and suddenly an unspeakable crime. Hi, Curious Listener. I'm Michelle O'Dell. Welcome to Corn Fed Killer. The case I have for you today finds us in Ledgeview, Wisconsin, which is a quaint, quiet neighborhood in the Green Bay area. On the night of May 21st, 2016, 31-year-old substitute teacher and mother of three, Nicole Vander Hayden, and her boyfriend and father of their youngest child, her youngest child, um, the two other children were from a previous relationship. So the couple's child is only six months old at this point, named Dylan. So Nicole and Doug, the father and her boyfriend, 34-year-old Doug Dietrich, embark on a much-anticipated night on the town. So this was the first time that the couple had been out together since the baby was born. Um, so Nikki in particular was really looking forward to this fun night out. She was still breastfeeding, um, and so she really hadn't had the opportunity to, you know, go out. So they finally got a sitter, and they are going out on the town. They go out with a few friends, and they begin the evening at a popular nightclub in Green Bay called The Watering Hole. There's a live band playing, and a couple drinks, and dances, and laughs, and eventually they decide to head to another bar called The Sardine Can. Doug tells Nikki to go on ahead with their friends and he'll catch up. So she goes and a little time goes by and Doug doesn't show up at the sardine can. Nikki starts texting him and she suspects that he stayed behind on purpose to hook up with another woman. She accuses him of such and they have a full-blown and quite ugly argument over text. At one point, Nikki decides that she wants to leave. She wants to go home. Camera footage from the sardine can shows Nikki and the two friends sitting and drinking at a table outside when she gets up and walks out the gate. It appears as if one of the friends tried to talk her out of leaving, but she could not be persuaded. And that would be the last time that Nikki Vander Hayden was seen alive. Later that very day, her body was found in a farm field just two miles from her home. The body was almost completely nude, save a sock on her feet, socks on her feet. The man who found her wasn't sure if the body was even a male or female when he found it because the body was so distorted with cuts and bruises and breaks and swelling. The face was beaten so severely that it was unrecognizable. At first, authorities were unsure who the woman was after they determined that it was indeed a woman. Then, just a few hours later, a phone call came into 911 that would lead authorities into identifying the body as that of 31-year-old Nicole Vander Hayden. Dental records would later confirm that identification. Around four o'clock, that day, 
A man called to report his girlfriend missing. So this is that 911 call. The call was placed by a man named Doug Dietrich. So the Doug, the boyfriend, right? And he says that he and his girlfriend had gone out drinking the night before. And he tells the 911 operator that he came home and went to bed, but his girlfriend never came home. Police at one at once wonder why it took him so long to report her missing. She was a breastfeeding mom for one, and the baby of course needed her. Secondly, since Doug knew she had been drinking, wouldn't he have wanted to make sure that she got home safely, even if they were in some kind of argument? Further, when he got up that morning and she wasn't there, even if he had just gone to bed and forgotten about her, when he got up and she wasn't there, wouldn't alarm bells have gone off? She wouldn't leave her kids like that. He knew that. So police go to the home of Nicole and Doug and they have a conversation with Doug. They record the conversation, video and audio, but the officers don't tell Doug that Nicole's body has been found. Because remember, the 911 call came in three hours after the body was found. So when they go to talk to him, they have this information, but they're not sharing it. They want to see his body language. They want to get his story first. So the police think he seems rather unconcerned for Nikki, even to the point of callousness. Police are quite suspicious of Doug Dietrich. Something just isn't adding up. So they obtain a search warrant that very day for the home and the cars. And while the search is being conducted, detectives bring Doug Dietrich down to the station for more formal questioning. Detectives ask him about the couple's night out. Doug tells them that he, Nikki, and friends went to the watering hole to listen to the band, to drink, to dance. He says Nikki got quite drunk, and he confirms that Nikki left the watering hole and went to the sardine can. He tells them that Nikki was accusing him of cheating and was mad at him, so he decided to go home and go to bed. He says that he got up twice during the night, or, you know, in the early morning time, to feed Dylan or to deal with Dylan, the baby, with the baby, and that she still wasn't home. He says he thought maybe she went off with another guy, and that's why he waited to report her missing. So, I don't know, curious listener, I'm not sure where your head is at this point, but he sounds like kind of an asshole, but that doesn't make him a murderer. Mm, you know, seems odd, but... As we say, and as you know, if you're a true crime aficionado, you can't judge anyone's reaction as evidence of anything because people react differently to, you know, being interviewed, to learning bad news, you know, so on and so forth. You always imagine how you would react, but you don't really know that until you're in that situation. So the fact that he seemed unconcerned Eh, you know, maybe it's weird, maybe it's not. They don't really know him or his character or the way that he, you know, reacts to things. So there we are. Meanwhile, a call comes into the station around 5 a.m. And a couple of joggers had called the police when they were out running that morning. And they report what they believe to be a pool of blood on the side of the road. 
The joggers told police that they were jogging and literally had to jump over a pool of blood so as not to step right in it. And wouldn't you know it, curious listener, this pool of blood was on the street outside of Doug and Nikki's house. Upon closer inspection, police find more blood in the lawn and a cord that looks like it maybe has been run over by a lawnmower. It's cut. It looks like maybe it was a cord from a car charger, or sorry, from a phone charger, and it appears to have blood on it. DNA testing would later reveal that Nikki's blood was on the cord. Furthermore, Nikki's sister pays a visit to the police station and tells detectives that Nikki had been depressed lately because Doug was going out and drinking a lot, leaving her alone with the kids, including their new baby, and that he had been cheating on her, or at least she had suspected him of cheating. Even worse, according to Nikki's sister, Nikki admitted to their mother that Doug had been physically abusing her. Her mother wanted Nikki and the kids to come and live with her, but Nikki declined. Her sister mused that maybe if she had taken their mother up on the offer, Nikki might still be alive. Nikki's sister wasn't the only woman that had something to say about Mr. Doug Dietrich. Rebecca Mott, an ex-girlfriend of Doug's, reports to police that Doug was a jealous boyfriend and that he had a violent side, a violent temper. He would get angry and break stuff, throw things around, and that during one argument, he even broke her ankle. So, curious listener, we're getting a picture of this douchebag. Uh, you know, his seemingly, you know, un, unconcer- being unconcerned about Nikki's being missing kind of makes us wonder now. Did he do something? He has this violent side and he seems to have a tendency to act out physically against women. So what is going on here? All right, curious listener, let me just start with a trigger warning here. This gets rough. All right, so police received the medical examiner's report and it's clear that Nicole Dinky Vander Hayden suffered tremendously in her last moments. Nicole had over 240 wounds all over her body, bruises, cuts, contusions, contusions, welts, you name it. There was evidence of strangulation as well as severe blunt force trauma. The ME had a difficult time concluding whether the cause of death was the strangulation or the blood force trauma. Finally, she decided that it was both. Both contributed to her death. It was, she was unable to figure out which came first. They also, they both, you know, pretty much happened in conjunction. There was also evidence of a sexual assault. Nicole had zigzag type patterns on her back. It was concluded that these were caused by the sole of a shoe, the tread on the bottom of some kind of shoe. Nicole had been stomped. The search of Nicole and Doug's home had revealed blood in Nikki's car, as well as a pair of gym shoes or tennis shoes, 
sneakers in Indiana here, we call them gym shoes, um, with a pattern of the, on the soles that seemed to match the pattern found on Nikki's back. The shoes also had blood on them, so police send them out for testing. Don't forget the blood outside the house as well as the cord that was found in the yard. At this point, police are 100% convinced that Doug Dietrich murdered his girlfriend on May 21st, 2016. Just two days after the body was found, Dietrich is arrested for her murder. So let's wash our hands of it. Case closed. That's it, right? Uh, you know better than that. Just 16 days after his arrest, Doug Dietrich is released from custody. The evidence that police thought they had against Dietrich is crumbling. Let's take it one by one. So the blood found in Nikki's car. Well, curious listener, as it would turn out, the blood did not belong to Nikki at all. It belonged to her daughter. It's unclear how the daughter's blood got there, but it was probably just from a minor cut or scrape, falling down on the playground or something like that. Nothing nefarious. Police had theorized that Doug had used the car to transport her body and to dump it in the field. So that theory was disproven by the lack of blood evidence belonging to Nikki. And also the police did, had discovered that the vehicle had not moved from its spot in the driveway that entire weekend. Now, what about the blood on Doug Dietrich's shoes? Well, the blood turned out to not only not be Nikki's blood, it wasn't even human blood. It was turkey blood. It was confirmed that Doug had gone turkey hunting not long before the night of the murder. And what about that pattern on the bottom of the shoes, the tread? Well, it did look like the pattern on the back of Nikki. But these were a pair of Nikes. And as you know, Nikes are a popular shoe. There were thousands of shoes that could have matched that pattern. So it just wasn't enough to tie Doug Dietrich directly to Nikki's body or to the murder. But police aren't giving up. Not that easy. So remember I told you that the very first encounter that they had, they recorded it? So the police go back and review that recording of Doug talking to the police that day that he reported her missing. Looking for anything that might give him away as the killer, anything they may have missed. Police notice in the video that Doug Dietrich is wearing a Fitbit, fitness tracker. And so Bingo, they think if they can get the data from that tracker, maybe they can prove that Dietrich was moving around and active in the middle of the night, the night Nikki was murdered. So they get it and they test it. And it turns out that he indeed, or, you know, was not <laughs> active during the hours that Nikki was not with him that night save from what could only be assumed to be two trips to use the bathroom during the middle of the night. It would seem that he had, after all, 
been in bed during the time she was murdered, just like he had told them. Dietrich had an alibi. Detectives are essentially back to square one, and the community was certainly on edge. Doug Dietrich was not their monster. So who among them was? And who would be next? A break in the case came two months later. DNA evidence that was found on Nikki's sock was ran through CODIS. If you've watched any of the crime shows, you know that CODIS is a national database where anyone who's ever been booked by the police or arrested for a crime, DNA is in the system. Okay, so it's run through that system and it gets a hit. The DNA belonged to a man named George Stephen Birch. Birch, according to his records, was a Virginia native and had been arrested in 2001 for the murder of a young woman. But he had apparently gone to the trial and was gone to trial for the murder and was acquitted. However, he did have a pretty substantial criminal history of violent crimes and was currently on probation for a crime that he had committed in Virginia. He was violating the terms of his probation by just being in the state of Wisconsin. So police set out to find this guy. Local police had no record of having any interaction with Birch, so they didn't know where he lived. But Green Bay police did have a record of an incident involving Birch. Though at the time, he was not suspected of any crime. In fact, Birch, along with his landlord and friend, a man named Edward Jackson, had contacted police to report a crime. It seems that Jackson's red Chevy Blazer had been stolen. Birch had been the driver. The last one to drive the car. He told the officers that he had driven the car to the local bar and he must have left the keys in it. And when he came out, it was gone. And the date that it was reported missing, you guessed it, the night after Nikki Vander Hayden's murder. Police located the car a short time later. The car had apparently been in some sort of accident. It was all smashed up. Not only that, the front seat had been set on fire. Very odd. And that was when they had their interaction with him. At the time, didn't seem suspicious to the cops. Looked like someone stole it, got in an accident, lit it on fire, or it got caught on fire, whatever. But now, looks kind of suspicious. Police pay a visit to the home of Edward and Linda Jackson. The Jacksons tell police that Birch had been renting a room in their Green Bay home for several months. The Jacksons had met Birch some time ago in New York and he told them that he was separating from his wife and he desired a fresh start. That is when he asked to return to Wisconsin with the Jacksons and they agreed. And that's when he started living with them and renting a room from them. They described him as very polite, 
fun-loving, charming, a well-liked guy. They could not imagine him committing any crime, let alone murder. Well, of course they couldn't, right? Like I said, this story is not unlike all, not all, not unlike many other stories of murder that start out seemingly innocuous. A nice town, a nice street, a nice guy, right? No one ever suspects. The Jacksons tell police that Birch was a regular at a local bar called Richard Cranium's. Everybody knew him and liked him. At six foot eight, George Birch, Birch was a big dude, but kind, and his nickname at the bar was Big Country. Police are shown a picture of Jackson and Birch from a fishing outing that took place on the very day that Nikki's body was discovered, the day the car was reported stolen. In the photo, Birch is holding up a large fish that he caught. He's grinning from ear to ear. Not a concern, not a care in the world. Police notice in the photo he has some cuts on his hands. They take Birch in for questioning. Birch, as expected, denies killing Nikki. He tells police that Nikki came into Richard Cramian, Cranium's that night and he talked with her at the bar. He says that the two of them really hit it off and they drank and they flirted a bit at the bar before he offered to drive her home. He says that after they arrived at her house, they had sex in his car. And the next thing he knew, a man came out of nowhere and clonked him on the head with something. When he came to, he says that the man was standing over Nikki's bloody body and forced him at gunpoint to help him dispose of her body. He says that the man made him drive to the farm field a few miles away and dump Nikki's bloody, lifeless body in the field. Then he drove the man back to Nikki's and he said that he'd never met the man before and he didn't know who he was. Later at the murder trial, he would identify the man as Doug Dietrich. Needless to say, George Birch is arrested and charged with the murder of Nicole Vander Hayden. So I don't know what you're thinking at this time, curious listener, but I can hazard a guess. You might be thinking something along the lines of bullshit, you know. Um, first of all, this guy is six foot eight. If someone came behind him and clonked him on the head, he would have to hit him super, super hard to get him to knock out to the point where he couldn't fight back. Right? I mean, it's, it's kind of unbelievable. I guess it's possible, but it's unbelievable. Even if that did happen, again, this big a guy, and Doug Dietrich is, is not a big guy, even at gunpoint, do you really think he would have just listened to what he told him to do, especially involving a dead body. I can imagine a guy like him would have probably put up a fight. So anyway, I digress. The prosecution surmises that Birch noticed Nikki immediately when she entered Richard Cranium's that fateful night and marked her as a target right away. She had been drinking. She was upset. He could play the nice guy role and take advantage of her. And that is just what the prosecution believed that he did. He drove her home, sexually assaulted her right outside her own house, then took a cord from his car, 
whatever was handy, probably a phone charging cord, and strangled her. Then she either fell out or he pushed her out of the passenger door and onto the curb where he proceeded to curb stomp her. After this bastard viciously murdered her, he picked her body up, took her to the field, and discarded her like trash. At some point that night or the next day, he staged a car accident and lit fire to the front seat, apparently to get rid of any DNA evidence. Now, I wonder if he had intended to set fire to the entire car, but maybe only the front seat burned. It seems weird that you would just choose the front seat, particularly if they had had sex in the back seat of the car. So I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe he tried to set fire to the whole thing. It just didn't all burn. I don't know. Um, his cell phone, move it, cell phone would confirm his movements for that night, and that was also presented in court by the prosecution. It showed him at the bar. It showed him at Nikki's house. It showed him at the dump site. All at the times that the police and the prosecution surmised that Nikki had been murdered. They had their killer. So at the trial, though, his defense attorney paints Doug Dietrich as a monster. George Birch points the finger at him, recounting that story that Doug killed Nikki and then made him help dispose of her body. And he says, that's why my phone shows that I was at the house and then at the dump site because he made me do it. He says, I am just a good guy giving a drunk girl a ride home. Nah. His defense attorney really goes hard at it, though, and prevents, presents Doug, as we said, as a real jerk, a real violent, controlling man, driven by jealousy, who went into a rage when he caught Nikki, his girlfriend, outside their house with a random man. Now, I can see that this defense would affect the jury, especially with his prior history, knowing that he had been physically abusive to Nikki in the past, even though he does deny that, knowing that he had been violent with an ex-girlfriend, even though, again, he denies that. The jury was shown texts that he had taken, or pardon, pardon me, that had taken place between Doug Dietrich and his mother in the days and weeks leading up to the murder in which he lamented his current situation, saying that he felt trapped with Nikki and the kids and he wanted out and he was thinking about leaving her. Um, Dietrich explained that he was upset at the time and he didn't mean it. Mm, I, I could go either way here. Either he did or he didn't. We don't really know. Um, I know one can get overwhelmed dealing with a baby and two small children and you know, being in a relationship and, you know, so sure it's possible. He said some things to his mom about, you know, being overwhelmed and wanting to get out that maybe he didn't mean. Maybe he did, even if he did, that doesn't mean he killed her, right? So the jury, they didn't take too long and they came back with a guilty verdict. One of the jury jurors would later explain that the cord was what clenched it for them the cord that had been used to strangle Nikki. You see, the cord had not only Nicole's, Nikki's DNA on it, but also Birch's DNA, but not Doug Dietrich's. 
How else would Birch's DNA have gotten on the cord if he hadn't been there, if he hadn't killed her? The judge sentenced Birch to the maximum sentence available in Wisconsin at the time, life without parole. Judge John Zakowski made this statement at sentencing, quote, this was the most brutal murder ever committed by one person in Brown County, Wisconsin, end quote. He described Birch's actions, citing the fact that he went fishing the very next morning without a care in the world as quote unquote, non-human. And I got to say, curious listener, I agree. You know, we can theorize about people's reactions to tragedy, to news of murder, to news of missing persons, like they try to um, judge Doug for his reactions. Um, and Doug's an asshole, don't get me wrong. I think he's a dick and he probably could kill someone. I, I mean, if he really truly is that violent of a person, but we don't really know that. But I mean, certainly not a good boyfriend. But in any event, um, the fact that this man could so viciously murder an innocent young mother and then go fishing and act totally normal, smiling, beaming from ear to ear. You know, he didn't act weird at all. Not guilty, not remorseful, nothing. So there you have it. That is the case of the tragic, tragic murder of Nicole Vander Hayden. Until next time, curious listener, you can check us out on Instagram at cornfedkillerpodcast. Send us an email at cornfedkillerpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.